Welcome to the RHA Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Dr. Fred Hess, Managing Director of Panost. It's great to have you along today. I'd never met Fred Hess prior to interviewing him for the podcast, but I found him to be a gracious host. And I certainly enjoyed hearing his story and also his views on leadership in challenging times. And it would be fair to say the mining industry has definitely been dealing with some challenging times in recent years. Before I introduce him to you properly, let me briefly introduce myself for those people who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if you have any vacancies in your team that we can assist with, I'd welcome the opportunity to chat to you about that. Let me now introduce to you Dr. Fred Hess. Fred Hess has over 30 years of experience in the mining industry in a diverse range of copper, nickel and gold operations. He has worked throughout Australia, as well as spending time in New Zealand and Papua New Guinea. Fred joined Panost and after working in a range of executive leadership roles, was promoted in November 2014 to the role of Managing Director. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Fred Hess. Well, uh, Fred, thanks very much for joining me on the Aratech podcast today. It's great to have you along on a beautiful uh, Brisbane spring day. Uh, perhaps just to begin with, for the benefit of the people listening, uh, talk a little bit about your current professional responsibilities. Thank you, Richard. Uh, more than happy to, uh, to talk about that. I'm currently the managing director of Panost. Panost is a, uh, a mining company with two operations currently in Laos. Okay. And we've got a number of development interests in other countries, including Papua New Guinea, mm-hmm. in Chile. And up until 12 months ago, we were a publicly listed company. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're wholly owned by a Chinese state-owned enterprise. Mm-hmm. So I actually work now for China Rink. Right. I noted uh, from looking at your... Uh uh, website uh, in preparation that I had known a few people on the board here, and suddenly they're not here anymore. So, uh, and so, how did that all that uh, come to be? The change of ownership. We've had our uh, ownership uh, change, as I say, sort of from 12 months ago uh, when we went from public to private. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, uh, uh, Guangdong Rising Assets Management, who are our current owner, were a cornerstone investor holding okay. 20% of Panost. They had held that position since the global financial crisis where they actually came to the rescue of Panost mm-hmm. uh, during that very difficult uh, period. And I suppose they've sat on their position, they've had an opportunity to see the company move forward, they've had a good chance to look at the management, uh, the direction that the company's moving in. And I think uh, they reached a point probably uh, 18 months or more ago where they decided that it was time to act, and Mm. uh, act they did. Okay. And how long have you been in the role for? So I've been the managing director now for two years, Mm -hmm. but with Panost I'm approaching 11 years. Right. And so no doubt substantial change over that period. Well, most definitely. When I joined Panost, uh, they were embarking on the uh, transition from explorer to producer. Right. With a fairly small uh, heat leach uh, mining asset in Laos. Mm-hmm. And my responsibilities at that time were to basically get that operation up and running. Mm-hmm. And since then, we've then gone on to uh, two more much larger operations. We've also undertaken a number of studies. And so really, the company has moved from uh, a market cap of $20 uh, million to when we were finally sold, over a billion. Mm-hmm. And along the way, uh, I think we we're over $2 billion at one stage. Right, wow. And certainly, you know, uh, from my own experience working in the executive recruitment space, uh, the last few years in Queensland have been very challenging for the industry. But how has the fact that your assets have been offshore, you know, uh, meant that you've been affected by what's happening locally? Uh, First of all, uh, I think there's some positive things about working offshore Mm -hmm. and uh, I think we're in a jurisdiction in Laos where 
you know, it's essentially third world, developing country, uh, it's landlocked, uh, it has a, a lot of issues, politically it's a one-party state. Uh, those sorts of things, uh, when you look at it superficially, you might say they represent significant challenges and they probably uh, mean that it's more difficult to operate there. Mm -hmm. And, um, okay, well, I, the, I, the, view, the view I was going to say was that I have is that if I look at Australia, I think of things like political risk because you've got different parties in place. Mm. Uh, you've got uh, as a, a different suite of risks, mm -hmm. but overall I feel much more comfortable about operating in Laos than I would in Australia. Wow, that's interesting. Which is difficult for an Australian to say. Sure, I bet, but I suppose... Uh, We've only got ourselves to blame in terms of uh, the constraints and challenges that have been put across the industry here. Well, exactly. And the investment dollar will go where investments are most welcome mm -hmm. and where the returns are, are most uh, profitable. And uh, I think uh, it's an issue for Australia to, uh, to manage. Mm -hmm. And particularly when it comes to mining, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you can make it difficult for people to mine uh, or you can make it easy. Mm -hmm. uh, but either way, people require the resources that are mined. Mm -hmm. uh, we get resources by either growing them or mining them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, we'll uh, no doubt talk a bit more about that later in the discussion, uh, but certainly I'm uh, very keen to go back and uh, start where it all began for you. So tell us a little bit about where you were born, your mum and dad, early life, etc. Well, uh, they say there's, there's two sorts of people in this world. There's the people that were born in Queensland and the people that wish they had have been. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I certainly uh, fit into the first category and I was born in uh, Western Queensland, a uh, place called Charleville. Yes. And uh, I, uh, I spent uh, essentially the first five years of my life out there and, uh, and in the first uh, five years I ended up, uh, sorry, uh, going to school. And in my first year at school, I actually had four separate primary schools. So right. my father worked in the uh, the railway. Okay. And I would probably be still based out there uh, working if uh, my brother hadn't been very sick as a youngster. Uh -huh. And that uh, required specialist hospital care. And so we, uh, we actually relocated from uh, out in the bush uh, down to Brisbane. And I've been here sort of largely ever since, except for... Uh, some extended periods overseas working. Okay. Older or younger brother? A younger brother. Uh-huh. So you're the oldest of just the two of you or...? Three of us. There's a daughter in between. Okay. Okay. Well, a sister, I suppose. And so when uh, your family moved down here, did your father continue working in the railway? Or... Yes. He, uh, he ended up uh, being uh, in the railway for some 47, 48 years and uh, I think he was sad the day he had to retire. Right. He, uh, he loved his work. And, okay. Uh, I think it's one thing that uh, I can say that my father has instilled in me is that uh, you, know, you, you need to enjoy your work because you're going to be doing it for a fair bit of your life. That's absolutely right. And, uh, and what about mum? Did she work or was she looked after? Yes, we were, we were a reasonably poor family and relocating down here and uh, not having the benefit of a railway house, having to buy your own okay. and those sorts of things. Uh, my mother went out and supported the family as well. Right, okay. And so uh, from uh, high school straight into university? Pretty much so. Um, you know, going through school, uh, uh, my father made it uh, very clear that uh, I'd attend school every day and right. I would do my homework. And, uh, and from that perspective, uh, I, I suppose I always enjoyed school because mm -hmm. uh, it was never really challenging. Okay. Uh, and so uh, when I did finish uh, eventually at high school, I went straight to university. Mm -hmm. And university's a, a great life, which mm -hmm. is why I ended up spending eight years there. <laughs> uh, it took me eight years to finish my undergraduate degree, but I, maybe perhaps for different reasons to you. <laughs> and so what did you go to university to study originally? Um, when I was at high school, I had a, a chemistry teacher that was quite influential in the sense that... Uh, uh, he, uh, he used to go down to the, the local bowls club on a Friday night and my father was a member there as well. Okay. And he'd have chats with my father and he'd explain that, uh, you know, Fred could probably do a, a little bit better at school. Now, All right. I was already getting sort of uh, uh, distinctions and uh, he thought I should be achieving high distinctions. Okay. So uh, my father would come back and, uh, and give me a nudge along. So. Uh, also, that uh, that teacher sort of taught us uh, at school how to play cards. Right. Uh, and uh, I think uh, he did chemistry and explained all about uh, life at uni and so on and so forth. And so I got quite excited about chemistry. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result of that, I actually did an undergraduate degree where I majored in inorganic chemistry. Okay. And where did the cards fit in? 
Uh, well, it was bridge that he taught oh, right. us to play, uh, and so it was quite an intellectual pursuit uh, sure. uh, playing bridge at, uh, at high school, and uh, I've always enjoyed it ever since. Yeah, it's interesting. My father uh, was the head of the pharmacy department at UQ for 20 years, and also a massive bridge uh, player. He's passed away now, but you know what? I, I wonder if there's some connection between uh, that type of science and being good at those kind of card games. What do you reckon? Um, if, if it is, it, it didn't really get to me because right. uh, I still find it a very challenging game and I'm just fascinated by how much there is to it. Yeah, right. And do you still play regularly? I, I don't play regularly, but I certainly like reading the bridge columns. And, okay. uh, the biggest problem is finding somebody uh, who's prepared to play only now and again because right. I travel so much. Yeah, sure. And so um, uh, at uni for eight years, you were doing some uh, postgraduate qualifications at the same time? Yes, yeah, so once I finished my uh, undergraduate degree, I did a, an honours degree, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I was all set to, uh, to go and uh, basically do a PhD in chemistry, but mm -hmm. the opportunity exists to, uh, to move to uh, the engineering faculty and okay. do metallurgy, and in fact they were struggling to get uh, postgraduate students uh, to do uh, metallurgy because uh, they all got jobs straight away out of, uh, right. out of university. And so they opened up the field and were looking to get uh, essentially science mm -hmm. uh, uh, qualified people in to, uh, mm -hmm. to do postgraduate work in metallurgy. And so I took up that option and uh, eventually, uh, after about four years, finished up with a, a PhD in uh, metallurgical engineering. Okay. And did you work whilst you were at uni to any part-time jobs or full-time student? Oh, I've always had uh, additional income. Right. So the... Uh, uh, I used to pick passion fruit up at uh, Budrum before all the houses uh, appeared there. Okay. I uh, used to be uh, working for a fruiterer and, uh, and all through university I was a, a drink waiter down at the Homestead Hotel. Oh. Sort of, uh, <laughs> so uh, I used to work bingo nights, weddings, balls. All right. Lots Fantastic. of fun. Okay. And so uh, where, where did things go to after you finished your university studies? I stayed on for a year at university to, uh, to do a bit of... Uh, uh, postdoctoral uh, work uh, with the Julius Kruchnit Mineral Research Centre, uh, working on a, uh, a simulator for metallurgy, uh, and, uh, and that simulator is now being commercialised. Okay. But, uh, but that was many, many years ago. So, what does that mean, a simulator for metallurgy? Well, it basically uh, allows you to simulate the operation of a metallurgical plant okay. and make predictions about how it might uh, perform under okay. various sort of uh, scenarios and uh, and basically a great tool for uh, for planning and development mm -hmm. if you're in mining. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but really uh, that was a, a holding pattern until I could find a real job out in industry. Right. And, uh, and eventually, uh, after about 12 months, uh, the opportunity uh, arose and I, uh, I went to work in Papua New Guinea at Bougainville. Okay, okay. And, uh, and I spent six years there and Bougainville was, uh, you know, very uh, topical in the news in uh, in 1989, 1990. Sure, I remember uh, when it eventually closed, yeah. and uh, I spent the previous six years there. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, when it did close, to me, it was paradise lost. Right. So, uh, did you have a family at the time? Uh, yes, uh, I had a, a very young daughter, and okay. in fact, uh, I uh, she was born in 1989, and. Uh, and we were looking to uh, to move as soon as she was born. She was born down here in Brisbane, mm -hmm. uh, back up to uh, to Bougainville. But my wife's parents were very concerned because on the news each night, yeah. uh, there were all these issues and people being shot at. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, anyway, I went back by myself and uh, eventually convinced my wife that no, it's all okay. Right. Don't believe what you're seeing on the news. So uh, she joined us uh, up there, and uh, and in fact, I was set to go down to the airport to collect her. And uh, on the day that she arrived back, and uh, unfortunately the road was blocked because of some rebel activity. Oh, really? And so I couldn't go down to the airport to meet my uh, my six-week-old daughter and uh, and my wife. And not a good start. And the next thing I hear is that uh, they're coming up to you on the uh, on the helicopter. So they came up on the helicopter, and of course it's the military helicopter with the guns hanging out the side. <laughs> and and I'm thinking about my wife's parents and thinking, hmm, it's it's probably just as well if we don't explain that my right. daughter had her first helicopter ride. Uh, in in one of the uh, the gunships that they had up there at the time, uh, so uh, it was an interesting start. Yeah. And uh, eventually, uh, uh, when the mortars start landing in the hills behind where we were living, it was time to uh, to move on. Fair enough. Yeah, I think uh, having known many people who have lived and worked in PNG, it's uh, definitely not for the faint-hearted. It, it it's 
PNG, the people are magnificent. Mm -hmm. They really are. Um, anywhere, a small number of people can give the larger mm -hmm. population a bad name. I mm -hmm. think that's certainly the case in PNG. But uh, I have uh, absolute uh, fond memories of my time up there. And as mm -hmm. I say, it was paradise lost from mm -hmm. my perspective. Uh, we've actually gone back to PNG uh, with one of the projects that we're looking at, a very substantial copper project. And uh, one of the things that drew me back was that my previous experiences in PNG, notwithstanding how I had to leave at sure. the end, yeah. were very positive, mm -hmm. and particularly in terms of the people. And I think, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the opportunities that present in Papua mm -hmm. New Guinea. Okay. So returned from there back to Brisbane? Uh, basically, there was this diaspora of people uh, leaving uh, Bougainville because there are some 800 or so expatriates and mm -hmm. all of a sudden uh, working in mining, trying to find jobs in mining. Mm -hmm. And eventually uh, I found a position with uh, Western Mining Corporation. Okay. And so uh, I took my wife from Bougainville uh, all the way to a place called Leinster, which is about a thousand kilometres inland from Perth. And uh -huh. I remember hopping off the plane with her and it was 45 degrees on the tarmac. Uh, <laughs> in the middle of March and uh, I think she wondered what she'd let herself in for right. uh, when, when we I, did that. You said you'd show her the world, she probably was expecting a bit differently. <laughs> it, uh, it was, so right. uh, that, was, uh, that was a good spot and we stayed there for a couple of years and moved around a number of Western mining uh, uh, sites in, okay. in Western Australia. And what sort of roles were you in then? Uh, I started off as the, uh, as the essentially the metallurgical superintendent at a gold operation, mm -hmm. uh, then moved on to a nickel operation, it then got combined into gold and nickel. Uh, I moved to another gold operation uh, and, uh, and essentially uh, at one of those I was involved with actually closing the whole operation and, and going through a, quite a substantial sale process. And mm -hmm. I think in terms of experiences, the opportunity to sell a mine uh, every nut, every uh, every uh, every house, uh, every everything that basically was there was was quite an interesting proposition. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, ever since then, I've had a uh, a respect for the work that auctioneers do mm -hmm. and their ability to uh, generate sales for things that uh, certainly I thought would be very very difficult to right. sell and to achieve the prices that they do. Because okay. uh, we we had a sale that. Uh, generated quite a substantial amount of money in the great scheme of things uh, when we looked at it overall uh, from assets that I thought were you know pretty tired mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. uh, very very good job and I'll give you an example uh, because I am fascinated by how good they were uh, they, uh, they, they they would go and sell uh, for instance uh, if we had multiple items they'd sell one of the items and whoever was the successful bidder would have the option of deciding how many items they'd want to take. Right. They could take one, two, or whatever the total number right. at the price that they bid. And if they didn't take it, then typically they'd then re-auction mm -hmm. uh, the next item after mm -hmm. they'd selected the one. And we had this particular item which was a, a large crusher. Okay. And we had two of them. And we, uh, we got to the end of the, situa the, uh, the auction and this person had bought this crusher for $75,000, which I thought was quite a reasonable price. And the auctioneer said to him, so do you want both of them or do you want one? Right. And the bidder sort of was umming and ahhing and umming and ahhing and eventually said, oh, I'll take that one. Okay. And the auctioneer said, fine, knock that one down. Then he proceeded to sell the next one. And of course, the next one didn't reach the price of the first one. And so he said, well, that one's being passed in then. Uh, and he moved on and continued to sell. But the, interestingly, the, uh, the person who bought the first one actually bid on the second one as well. Okay. And about half an hour later, the person who bid on that uh, and won the, uh, the crusher came back and spoke to the auctioneer, who'd by this time uh, basically been replaced by somebody mm -hmm. else and said, listen, um, I'll, I'll come back and I'll, I'll buy that, uh, that second crusher off you. I'll, I'll give you $60,000 for it. Right. Uh, which was a $15,000 discount on what he paid for the first one. And the auctioneer said, well, actually, that, uh, that crusher is, uh, is going to sell for $90,000. Okay. And, uh, and the person who bid and won the first crusher actually paid $90,000 for the second one. Right. The auctioneer could tell that he wanted both of them. Right. And he made sure that 
he got a premium for right. the second one. Okay. And so somebody thought they were being smart with the auctioneer and coming back and offering a discount. The auctioneer knew his man and, uh, and he achieved a premium. And I, I say, absolutely take my hat off to their ability to, to deal with those sorts of things. It's, a, it's an art form really, isn't it? It is. So uh, I learnt a lot from watching right. uh, simple things like that. Well, and uh, out of interest, uh, you know, later in life, had that particular type of skill, where have you drawn upon that? I, I think uh, never bid on something that uh, you are desperately or emotionally attached to. Yeah. Uh, and that includes houses. Uh, and it's far better to have somebody who's uh, completely unemotionally detached mm -hmm. uh, do those sorts of things. But also, uh, I think uh, what comes through is that uh, in, in every aspect, in every profession, there are things that are skills that mm -hmm. are peculiar to that profession sometimes mm -hmm. that you should respect. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so uh, where did things uh, move then for you career-wise? Uh, eventually uh, had the opportunity of, uh, of leaving uh, Western Mining and uh, was promoted to actually run a mine site by myself mm -hmm. and uh, I moved to uh, a, uh, in northern Queensland to a mine called Mount Gordon. Okay. And, uh, and that was quite a, a challenge because mm -hmm. it was a mine that was struggling at a period of uh, low metal prices but it was an opportunity for advancement and so I was more than happy to take that. Mm -hmm. uh, the reality was that after about 18 months the, uh, the mine actually slipped into administration mm -hmm. and I have to say that is one of the uh, uh, experiences that I would not wish upon anybody mm -hmm. is to have to deal with uh, a situation where a company goes into administration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very difficult on the employees, it's very difficult on the creditors um, and it's just a very, very challenging mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. And I think the, uh, the, the very powerful uh, learning that I took away from that is that, uh, particularly in terms of uh, my role as a, as a managing director now, that you have responsibilities that uh, extend uh, beyond uh, your immediate family. They extend to the employees that depend on the decisions that you make the creditors, the people that are supported by your operation. Mm -hmm. And I look at Laos and think of the local communities and things like that. And, and really it gives you the determination to make sure that you are successful because from my perspective, I'd never like to see a, an operation go into administration again mm -hmm. if I can prevent it. Sure. And in terms of your own skill set, I mean, you're starting now to move into more senior management roles. Um, your undergraduate qualifications were very much um, you know, around your sort of scientific discipline. So as you started to see your career move in that direction, did you think I need to, you know, upskill myself or get some uh, formal mentoring or things to help me to uh, be able to carry out my responsibilities well? Um, I must admit, after 20 years of education, I'd had pretty much as much as I wanted of it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I got very good, I think, at, uh, at being able to read a textbook mm -hmm. without necessarily being taught. Right. So, if you like, uh, my continuing education was that uh, I'd read textbooks. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, to acquire some accounting knowledge, sort of, I read an accounting book. Okay. And, uh, and also, uh, I think the, uh, the other thing that I desperately needed after 20 years of education was some real life experiences mm -hmm. in the workplace and mm -hmm. so for me it was an opportunity to look at uh, people who were successful in the workplace and, uh, and try to understand sort of what made them successful mm -hmm. uh, and as a result of that I think that's what sort of guided uh, my mm -hmm. career probably in terms of development. Okay and were there particular things that you were noticing at the time in the way that other people were leading successfully that you thought I want to adopt that, that looks like that's a good way to go? I, I think when I look back on it, there's, uh, there's certain leaders that I worked for or worked with that uh, I've been able to pick out various things from what they've done and I've tried to apply them myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of the common things that, uh, you know, I think relate to leadership uh, I saw in a lot of those people. And, uh, and without having sort of uh, uh, looked at it in detail and say, you know, I think that's a specific skill I wanted, mm -hmm. I think... Uh, by being involved with them, watching them in various scenarios, mm -hmm. you start building up a, a war chest of uh, 
of experiences that mm -hmm. you can apply. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest challenge uh, for anybody when they're promoted, and particularly I found this when I went from being a, a manager level to running an entire mine site, is mm -hmm. that when I, when I became the manager of an entire mine site, uh, it was no longer the case that it was somebody else's problem. Mm. I was just providing advice. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have to take uh, responsibility for uh, following the advice. It all of a sudden became, uh, I'm responsible and, and I need to find the best solution mm -hmm. for the issues that confront me. And quite often it meant that uh, there was no one more senior that I could talk to. I had to deal with the people underneath me. Mm -hmm. And that was the resource that I had to, uh, to rely on to solve whatever the issues were. And I think uh, from the point of view of education, I think uh, my degree and all of the work that I did postgraduately, that got me to be a manager. Yeah. But when you move from being a manager in a particular discipline to then suddenly managing a number of disciplines that you've not trained in, mm -hmm. then you have to start relying on people skills and a lot of those other things you have to be able to, to discern very quickly what are the key elements of some of these other disciplines that I need to be aware of mm -hmm. if I'm going to manage them all. Mm -hmm. And so I think the biggest step that I certainly had in my career was that step from manager to general manager of a site. And I think uh, if people can make that step, then everything thereafter is relatively straightforward, would mm -hmm. be my view. You're just doing more of the same. Yeah. And do you think that at the time uh, it was like such a pivotal moment in your career you were actually considered in, okay, I need to draw on certain new skills and attributes to round myself out, or did it just kind of happen by chance? Uh, I, I think I responded to the situation, and, uh, and you know, when you sit down by yourself and you're not discussing it with somebody else, mm -hmm. you go back through the memory and think about uh, how would such and such have dealt with this. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and essentially, uh, I think uh, that's been pretty much the, the, the case. I've also had the opportunity of you know, some of my uh, uh, previous sort of supervisors and that. I've often sort of given them a, a call when I really got difficult mm -hmm. or when I was feeling down about something or mm -hmm. a bit unsure. And that's always been useful sort of, uh, I think uh, uh, any time you share a problem is a, is a way of sort of relieving a little bit of the burden. Also, mm -hmm. it's a way of opening up to uh, new solutions that mm -hmm. perhaps you hadn't thought of. Okay. And so uh, your early career, you're involved in selling a mine site, then you're involved in a mine site that goes into administration. Some uh, pretty uh, uh, significant uh, milestones in terms of building your war chest of skills. What happened after that? Well, I've certainly um, done a lot of travel in terms of, uh, and, uh, in terms of my career as in a mining profession, and, uh, and, and to be honest, you know, that's part and parcel of the game. So uh, I, uh, I went to New Zealand for, for 12 months, and okay. uh, I, uh, I managed to get myself terminated from that position, right. um, which is uh, always a good thing when, uh, when I talk to other people about, uh, you know, I've been... Uh, I've been uh, retrenched, I've been sacked, I've been, uh, I've resigned, I've, I've ticked nearly all the ways right. of leaving a, a company that you've, uh, that you can imagine. So, I think they call that a scar resume. Yeah, so, uh, and, uh, you know, there's particular reasons why uh, I've done those things in, in each situation, but uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, once again as a general manager when I was sacked is that uh, I, uh, I, I'm not afraid to defend my position sure. uh, and, uh, and my beliefs and uh, in the face of a managing director who had uh, a different views about the way I was managing, I was more than happy to put my position uh -huh. uh, on the line. So, uh, so that was fine. Uh, he, he was happy he got rid of me, I was happy because uh, I got rid of him but right. uh, he, he paid me out along the way. Okay, so that was 12 months in New Zealand and then uh, what, what happened from there? Oh, uh, really, the rest of the time has been with Panos. Right, so how did that role originally uh, come up for you? Uh, well, basically, uh, I was looking around because I could see the writing on the wall in New yeah. Zealand. I came over to Australia and did an, an interview uh, with the, uh, the then managing director, Gary Stafford. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's the only time it's ever happened in my career, but I had a job offer before I left the office uh, from the interview. Right. And, uh, and uh, I basically spent a day uh, when I got home, talked to my wife and said, yeah, we'll take it. Mm -hmm. uh, between uh, when I'd done that and when I got back to New Zealand, uh, I got terminated. So I then was able to ring back uh, Gary and say, listen, I'm available straight away. Right. And he got a bit of a shock, I suppose. And, uh, and so I was able to start within a week. Right. So the termination happened 
post the offer of the new role, was that something that was in the back of your mind as a likely outcome, or was that a, I, a surprise? I, I didn't think the timing could be so perfect, okay. uh, but uh, it was something that was certainly in the back of my right. mind, but uh, it just goes to show that a little bit of planning does help a lot. Sure, and since um, then your family's just resided in Brisbane? Pretty much so, uh, Brisbane's become our, uh, our home base, okay. and so... Uh, uh, my wife and I, our, our two daughters, uh, have grown up here and uh, much to their pleasure sort of uh, staying in the one sure. place for the, the last few years okay. in, uh, in Brisbane to finish high school but uh, they've now disappeared and uh, one's in Perth and one's in Melbourne so we're basically empty nesters. Right, okay, very good. And so um, you've been here for quite a number of years, you know, if you look back over that time, what, what are some of the, uh, the key milestones? You've obviously spoken about the recent um, uh, change of ownership, but what are some of the things uh, that have happened uh, that you've uh, really felt proud of in terms of achievements? Um, one of the things that happens in the mining industry is that you have really good highs when metal prices are going well, and you have really uh, big lows when things aren't going well, and mm -hmm. so you get you know, the full extreme of emotion in terms of, you know, you can be really successful and you can be really up against it very hard. And uh, I think the one thing that uh, I look back on is that uh, when times have been at their most difficult is when I felt I've actually earned my money right. uh, as, a, as a manager, as a general manager, and it's been when I've been most challenged. And mm -hmm. uh, when I think back on the career, it's been the, the bit that's excited me the most is when it's been most challenging, mm -hmm. I've enjoyed my work the most, even though the outcome of that has perhaps not been from a financial point of view mm -hmm. for the company or what have you, mm -hmm. it's most successful. Okay. And in fact, uh, when prices are high, you don't need to manage nearly as intently or as well mm -hmm. as when prices are low. Yeah, well, we've certainly seen that, uh, plenty of examples of that uh, in recent times. What do you think are some of your inherent traits that enable you to, uh, to be your best in those situations? Uh, one thing I've always had is, uh, is confidence in spades. Okay. And, uh, and I've always uh, had the view that regardless of what the issue is, there's always a, a pathway to solving it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if I can't solve it myself, then uh, there's lots of resources, the people that work for me, that I'm sure mm -hmm. by engaging them that they, uh, they can resolve it. And so, uh, you know, I've always uh, been a very big believer in, in having good people working for you. Mm -hmm. uh, the best way to look good is to have good people working for you. Uh, and, uh, and to do that, you need to make sure that, uh, you know, you, uh, you are in a position where you can actually lead them mm -hmm. in the right direction. And really, it's a, it's a, in many respects, it's, it's using all of the good things that people have uh, who are working for you and the ideas that they have and being able to meld that into something that represents a, uh, a plausible story, a direction that you can then feed back to everybody. Mm -hmm. And really being able to meld together all of those ideas and be able to pluck that out, I think is a, an important part of what I've learned and an important part of what I've applied in terms of what I do going forward. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot of uh, leaders uh, would love to be able to attract and retain top talent, have that brains trust around them for, uh, for those sort of opportunities. Uh, what are some of your strategies that you use to create an environment that allows for that? Um, I think uh, I've been uh, you know, reasonably perceptive with individuals that I thought had uh, great potential and have done the things that have been appropriate to, to hang on to them. Um, I'll give you one example where when I first started uh, for uh, uh, Panost, uh, I was up in Laos and essentially the day I arrived was the day the mining manager left the site okay. and we were desperately seeking a mining manager because there weren't many expatriates up there and it was an important part of the operation. And I quickly went out and recruited and I got somebody recruited and they started work and they were there no longer than probably a week and then there was a family issue back at home right and they had to uh, to leave site mm -hmm. and they, they would typically have been up there for a four-week roster swing right. but after one week they've left and this was just one week in they'd barely got there and so they they went back and i said listen just go back and sort the family issue out mm -hmm. um i'll You're see you 
I'll you were in country at the time? I was in country and All I said, right. I'll see you when you get back. Okay. And two and a half weeks later, I hadn't heard back from him. Right. And, uh, and he called. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he said, I'm coming back. Now, quite a while later, you know, uh, and this person still works for us. And in right. fact, uh, he's been promoted up and is one of our, our key uh, general managers in the business. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but he said to me uh, later that... Uh, when I first arrived at the site, I, I thought it was terrible. The challenge was too much for me. I've made the wrong decision. Right. And then the family issue came along and I thought, great, I'm out of here. Yeah. And then he said, when you didn't contact me for two and a half weeks and pester me about coming back, I felt all guilty right. about deserting you. And so I thought I'd better come back. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, he, he came back and he's been there for 11 years. So right. I, 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 I put that as a, as a big tick because he's been a, a very valuable employee to have. So, yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm sure ret- retaining staff through guilt is probably not a core strategy of yours. <coughs> and I imagine also in that two and a half years, you probably wanted to call him many times. <laughs> I, I certainly was desperate to have him come back, but right. I was also... I thought it would be far better if I didn't push him, and it was a family mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think being able to let people deal with the family issue, uh, uh, you can't focus on a work issue while mm-hmm. you've got significant family issues, was the right thing to do. And so mm-hmm. I felt quite vindicated uh, yeah. by that. And so um, uh, during this period that you've been essentially at the helm of uh, Panost, um, and seeing it go through a number of different iterations in terms of ownership and the projects you're involved in and, and so forth. You know, what, what have been the, uh, some of the, the critical milestones for you in terms of the ways you've had to change you know, the strategy or the leadership in order to deal with a, an external environment that's going through a lot of change? Uh, for me personally, I think uh, the, the biggest issues I've had are the step up from uh, uh, general manager of a division, if you like, to, yeah. to becoming the managing director. Uh, and uh, certainly the, uh, the the requirements of the role sort of are somewhat different to just managing mm-hmm. a division. Particularly, uh, you know, I've always been, I think, uh, reasonable at sales, but you know, mm-hmm. when you're a managing director, a significant part of your, mm. your, your job is selling. Mm-hmm. Uh, selling the story mm-hmm. uh, to uh, shareholders, to employees, to analysts, mm-hmm. uh, to bankers. Uh, those sorts of things. So uh, uh, what I've also found is that the transition from a publicly owned company to one that's privately owned, and particularly overseas, Chinese, uh, has presented sort of significant uh, opportunities as well as challenges, and particularly challenges from a cultural perspective, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the reliance that uh, our owners have on uh, essentially an international management and so it's challenged my communications I suppose in another way mm-hmm. uh, across the cultural divide mm-hmm. and that's been a per- very positive experience I think both for our new Chinese owners uh, and uh, and also ourselves as a management team and I think uh, that's been a, a really great uh, mm-hmm. uh, learning experience for me is, okay. is that and it's something that I found uh, very satisfying so right. you know, even at this uh, at this late stage in my career, I suppose I'm still finding new things to learn. Yeah, uh, well, that's, uh, I mean, they're both quite interesting points. So just from a sales point of view, I mean, certainly, you know, uh, starting a career as a scientist and then working in an operational role on a mining site, w- somebody would not generally see their career progressing to having a well-rounded complement of uh, sales skills. You know, um, uh, and I, I know many, many people who find that an incredible uh, barrier to, in terms of their own psyche to uh, think that they need to step into a role which has a large selling component to it. How, how did you, you manage that process for yourself? Well, I've always been comfortable, I think, uh, talking to people. Uh, when I know my, uh, my subject, I don't have a problem sort of right. talking to large numbers of people. Uh, when I'm committed to mm-hmm. what I'm talking about, I find it's also easy. And so for me, uh, uh, being able to demonstrate passion is, uh, is something that uh, has been very important and uh, I, can, I can remember um, one of my uh, fellow employees uh, when we were doing sort of 360s uh, many years ago, he made the comment about me uh, and on reflection I think he was right, which was that the things that I really give a shit about 
I really put a lot of effort right, in. Right, yeah. But the things I don't give a shit about, <laughs> I don't do anything about. And so uh, it's all about finding the things that really yeah. uh, uh, that you can you can care about. Right. And uh, and those things for me are the things that I have passion. Now, mm-hmm. as I say, I've always enjoyed work. I like seeing people succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the uh, the opportunity to to guide a company, uh, uh, and uh, and I like to see. Uh, uh, I suppose in my role, I don't actually mind being guided right. by my uh, my general managers, and yeah. uh, and really, uh, it's uh, it's a way of me saying that I, I have a lot of confidence mm-hmm. in in them, in that I'm prepared to trust their judgment in things. I, mm-hmm. I certainly don't believe that uh, that I am all powerful, all knowing when it comes to uh, selecting the things, and so. Uh, well, it doesn't happen very often. They have the ability to roll me in terms of decisions. Right. And, uh, and certainly in relation to the second point uh, about the change of ownership to uh, a Chinese um, uh, uh, ownership um, company, um, I mean, many people see that as fraught with challenge, uh, particularly the cultural um, uh, disconnect uh, uh, what were some of the things going into that you thought, well, in order to be forewarned and forearmed, you know, I need to pick up certain skills or do some learning. Were there anything in particular that you did? Uh, not specifically. Uh, I think it was fair to say that uh, we, we had probably five or six years because we had a director on the board yeah. that was Chinese that, you know, through the course of interaction with management, uh, I got to know uh, and they certainly got to know me better. I think uh, the other key thing that certainly has come through is that uh, recognising that you know the Chinese Chinese culture and the Chinese approach to certain issues yep. is different to our Western approach. Yeah. Another thing that uh, I find is that uh, sometimes uh, and and at times quite often uh, things get lost in translation. So mm-hmm. uh, you know. We've, we've found on a number of occasions that something was said in Chinese and we've interpreted it in English right. when it's been translated as this. Okay. And, and we've gone off and done things and then found out, well, subtlety was that that wasn't quite what right. was meant wow. or it wasn't meant as firmly. Uh-huh. And, and so getting the, getting the hang of that has been, I think, uh, the, the sort of challenges that I've found. And, and what's that uh, has done then is it's actually helped us become better communicators, mm-hmm. uh, even though culturally and from a language perspective, mm-hmm. it's completely different. And I think that's actually brought us closer together because I think it's helped our Chinese uh, owners, they understand more about the way we operate mm-hmm. uh, and the things that we are comfortable with as we have understood more about the way they operate mm-hmm. and what they're comfortable okay. with. And I think that's that's been very positive for our business. And I think we've been certainly very much strengthened by the change of ownership because mm-hmm. of the financial strength of our owner. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, so we're sitting here nearly at the end of 2016. You know, when you're looking to the future uh, for Panost, what are some of the things you're excited about? Well, first of all, uh, I think uh, where we have got to with our existing operations in Laos uh, is something that I'm very proud of in terms of their, their, their safety performance, their production performance. Uh, their ability to manage costs at the low point in the uh, the metal price cycle, uh, and just in general, uh, the work that's taking place up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've reached a situation where we're approaching 95% localised. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started from a very much lower base than that. And once again, I feel really proud about the way we've brought the local population on and how we've upskilled them. So I feel very comfortable about our existing operations. I'm very excited about the fact that we're looking to develop one of the largest copper deposits in the world in Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. It's similar to Laos in many respects in that it's a very remote location. Uh, It's very backward economically where we're looking to do things. Uh, We have uh, immense community support there. And uh, and significantly, there's quite a challenge in bringing all the elements of a very large project together uh, to, uh, to see it into fruition. But it's recognised by the government of PNG and also the host provinces for the deposit that it's a substantial nation-building uh, opportunity mm-hmm. to develop this project, and so I feel very positive about uh, about that. And uh, and really, I think the uh, the other thing that I see uh, going forward is that because we are at the bottom of the metal price cycle, uh, opportunities to make acquisitions mm-hmm. present themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, as better value mm -hmm. uh, and, and more in quantity at this point in time. So we're out there having a look at what might be available to add to our suite mm -hmm. of assets so that not only are we looking to grow organically but also to acquire mm -hmm. uh, new operations or new pre-development assets that we can use to build a larger company. Mm -hmm. Which could be in a, a range of different countries. Yes, we don't have any uh, particular jurisdictional mm -hmm. uh, issues, uh, so we're, we're looking really uh, where we think the, uh, the most likely mm -hmm. uh, uh, copper and gold deposits are okay. around the world. Uh, so, you know, that means the Americas, it certainly means Africa, and obviously we're right. in Asia and Papua okay. New Guinea as well already. So watch this space. Most definitely. Fantastic. This uh, podcast is largely going out to an audience of people who aspire to becoming C-level executives and non-executive directors. I mean, you've talked over the course of the conversation about some of your views on leadership and the things that have enabled you to be successful, but were you to be sitting down in front of somebody and, and wanting to really distill you know, that wisdom into a few key statements, what are the kinds of things you'd say? Uh, first of all, uh, I think, uh, I, and I've done this for, for some groups, but I think it's useful at some point uh, to make sure that you get noticed, that mm -hmm. you stand out in a crowd. Mm -hmm. uh, so do things that are distinctive. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, performance is always something that gets noticed, so make sure that you perform strongly. And, and you don't perform strongly if you're, you're lazy. You, mm -hmm. need to, you need to enjoy what you're doing. People need to see that you enjoy what you're doing. Uh, and I think uh, you need to be disciplined in your approach and particularly in terms of, uh, I think, uh, uh, managing expectations, uh, managing uh, uh, essentially the people that work for you and making sure that you can make the, uh, the most of the resources that you have available to you. And, and one of the things that, uh, that I, uh, I, I must admit I've learned as a, as a manager that I find very important is that quite often uh, the way you improve things is not necessarily by adding resources mm -hmm. but taking some away mm -hmm. and I'll give you a good example of that is that when the GFC hit um, a number of mining companies and ours in particular uh, suffered cash flow mm -hmm. issues and it's amazing what was possible when we had no money to spend right. what we were able to achieve and, and in fact, uh, the number of things that we all of a sudden didn't realise it previously, but we were then able to do without mm -hmm. and still deliver the outcomes that were important. And the fact that we had a significant issue like the GFC got mm. everybody's minds focused mm. and it was amazing actually what you could do. But moving on beyond the, uh, the GFC, because that... Uh, that focal point has moved on, it's very difficult to maintain the intensity. Yeah. Uh, but my view is still that, uh, you know, quite often the first thing I would look to do is to, if I wanted to make something better, is that I need to take something away right. just to get people sharpened and yeah. focused a little bit more, which is completely different to the way government operates, mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so part of that is, I suppose, a fear mentality of, gee, if I don't make this work, my own livelihood is uh, at risk. And I suppose the other side is it's really getting people to be a lot more creative. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I've never thought of the consequences of failure. Right. It's always been, as I say, uh, as a person who's confident, I've always mm -hmm. been uh, confident that we will be successful. Mm -hmm. I can't articulate how we'll be successful, but I know if I've got the resources available to me in terms of good people, we will find a way. So, uh, you know, I've, I've never had a fear of failure, and, uh, and so... To me, it's always been about uh, uh, stepping back and being very methodical and very planned about things mm -hmm. uh, and, and making use of the resources that you've got available if you want to solve things that mm -hmm. are challenging. Okay. And what about in terms of your own career? I mean, you mentioned earlier that, you know, uh, uh, you're, you've had a long career, but no doubt there's still plenty to come. You know, uh, where would you like to see your own career go over coming years? Uh, I, I'm very happy with where I am now. Uh, I think there's great opportunities ahead for Panost as a business. Uh, I think we have very supportive owner. Uh, we're in a, uh, a, a challenging environment that lends itself to growth. Mm -hmm. So from my perspective, I see a great opportunity to continue the work here at Panost. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, I think there's more than enough work there for me to keep myself uh, sufficiently challenged and uh, I just enjoy, as I say, the people that I work with as well. So right. uh, I'm, I'm quite happy, uh, I hope my boss is listening to this, to, uh, <laughs> to stay on. Oh, well, that's good. And so final question before I let you go, I appreciate you're a very busy man. Uh, we've talked a lot about work today. Uh, what are the things that you like to do when you're not working to keep uh, life interesting and the petrol tank full? Uh, I, I, I buy a new set of golf clubs each year because it's important to keep up with the latest technology to right. help my game, but uh -huh. unfortunately it hasn't flowed through into my, uh, my handicap, but right. uh, I, I really do enjoy playing golf and I think it's, uh, it's great to get outside and have you play some regularly. Um, no, because I travel too much right. and uh, it does take up a, a lot of time. Uh, but I certainly practice regularly. Okay. You haven't uh, moved into wearing lycra and uh, riding around uh, with your mates? And shaving my legs and things like that. <laughs> no, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a bike rider. Right. Uh, I think they're, uh, they're dangerous on the road. Oh, uh, okay. So, uh, Controversy on the Arate podcast. Watch out. But uh, no, the, uh, the, other, the other thing that uh, really excites me is, uh, is I, I collect stamps. Okay. So, uh, so that's been something that uh, I think I picked up very late in life from my right. father. When, I, uh, when he passed away, I inherited his stamp collection. Okay. I thought, oh. It inspired you. It did, actually. Right. Yeah. And what's your most uh, rare or exciting stamp that you own? <laughs> I, uh, I have a few. Uh, okay. But uh, there are, for instance, uh, I collect all the way back to the first stamps that Australia produced oh, in the colonies. Wow. Uh, so I've got a, quite a reasonable collection of those right through to the Commonwealth. Okay. But probably the, uh, the thing that interests me most is uh, they're not particularly valuable, but uh, I've set a, a goal of collecting all the stamps that I, uh, I can find related to my, my, my industry, so the right. mining industry. Okay. And so getting examples of mining industry on stamps. Okay. Uh, and I've identified probably six and a half thousand individual stamps right. that pertain to the mining industry, and I'm probably about 95% of the way through collecting them. So right. that's that's my my project okay. uh, in my spare time. And are you a bit like these people who are very passionate bird watchers, where they say there's only a particular bird that appears once every 10 years, and I have to be exactly at the right place at the right time to get that stamp? Are there are there the elusive stamp that you really really want? It, it is, and it's a it's a journey. Uh, right, and uh, I think. Uh, Patience is certainly something that uh, I'm not good at, uh -huh. but certainly collecting means you have to be patient. Yeah, sure. Um, particularly when you're chasing things that are rare. Right. Oh, that's uh, fantastic. So it is. Uh, it is. It is useful uh, uh, discipline and a counter to my natural tendencies. Right. Does your wife share that passion? Uh, she, she she certainly advises me regularly that uh, I am impatient. <laughs> And, uh, and she, um, she acknowledges that I go downstairs and I do my stamping, as she calls okay. it, but, uh, but she does not share that. Passion. All right. Oh, that's awesome. It's fascinating what different people are into. I interviewed Paul Pasali, the mayor of Ipswich, for the podcast about three weeks ago, and he's got the Guinness Book of Records for, I think it's the biggest tea set collection in the world. <laughs> and when you go into his office, literally the walls are lined with tea sets and um, different you know different uh, horses different courses well Fred I really appreciate your time thanks very much and uh, have a fantastic afternoon thanks very much Richard okay thanks again for joining us today on the Arate podcast I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Fred Hess and I'm looking forward to having you along for further episodes in the meantime have a fantastic week.